0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah?
1: Doing good. Good. We've nearly finished packing up the living room,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which was kind of the daunting room. <laughs> the most daunting room, Yeah. given the amount of books and DVDs. But uh, yeah, we're nearly done.
0: Yeah, we've got all of the books packed and a third of the like movies packed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's all books in the apartment as well.
0: Yes, 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 yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, so we're doing doing good for our move at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. How are you doing, Ben?
0: I'm doing great. I've had a really lovely weekend uh, with you and. Aww. <laughs> uh, yeah, everything's everything's good. So long as I never look at the news.
1: Yes, that is an evergreen comment.
0: Yes, another evergreen comment is towards our listeners in. Well, the United States, most of all, but uh, across the world, we hope that you are safe. And healthy. And that you stay that way.
1: Yeah. I think another evergreen statement is that someone's always going to try to resuscitate a dead person.
0: Yes. In the horror genre, the dead do not stay dead. But do they walk? We'll see. In this week's movie, El Monstro Resuscitado... From 1953, that's The Resuscitated Monster, for those of you (laughs) at home. Cool. So we are still in Mexico, but we have caught up to the present day.
1: Yes, the last few episodes have been a trek into um, past Mexican horror movies that we had not been able to cover due to availability of some of these movies. Last week's movie was El Hombre Sin Rostro. And that was from 1950, so the last Mexican horror movie mm-hmm. uh, that Mexico has seen. And before that, 15 years prior, El Misterio del Rostro Palido. That's from 1935, and both of those films are from Father of Mexican Horror Juan Bustillo Oro.
0: Yes, and the success of El Hombre sin Rostro led to kind of a return to Mexican films of the horror genre.
1: It has been three years, though.
0: Yeah, these things sometimes take time. (laughs) Uh, This week's film is not by Oro, but by another mainstream director who is seeking to emulate Oro's success in this genre. Okay. This director's name is Santiago Eduardo Ureta Sierra, credited as Chano Urueta. So Urueta was born in 1904. He was the son of the diplomat Jesus Urueta. He directed his first film, El Destino, in 1928. And through the 1930s and 40s, he became well-known and acclaimed for his adaptations of literary works. He also directed one of the earliest Lucha Libre films, La Bestia Magnifica, in 1953. And that film was a little bit unusual for Mexican cinema at the time because it ran 128 minutes long because Urueta included three fight scenes in their entirety. Like three of the matches in their entirety.
1: Yeah, that's like two hours. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Urueta would continue with both horror films after this and lucha films Contributing to the rise of the lucha adventure movies where luchadors like El Santo and the Blue Demon would battle against, like, horror monsters like vampires and mummies and werewolves and the like.
1: That's amazing.
0: Uh, He passed away in 1979.
1: So it sounds like we'll be coming back to his films in the future.
0: We will be, yes. Cool. The film's top-billed performer is the actress Miroslava. Born Miroslava Sternova in Prague in 1925, her family moved to Mexico when she was 16 to escape the Second World War. Her mother passed away from cancer in 1945, the same year Miroslava started winning beauty contests in Mexico City. She began to take acting lessons and appeared in her first film in 1946. She quickly became immensely popular, kind of this like, blonde bombshell of mexican film uh and she was nominated for an aerial award for the 1953 film las tres perfis casadas i'm not sure about my pronunciation there but it's the three perfect wives oh okay her final role was in 1955's Enseo de un crimen for luis bunuel that was her final role because after filming was completed, Miroslava committed suicide via overdose of sleeping pills. Oh no. Her suicide letters indicated that she was in despair over the marriage of bullfighter Luis Miguel Dominguin to actress Lucia Bose, Miroslava's love for Dominguin being unrequited.
1: That's so sad.
0: A biopic about her life was made in 1992. Directed by Alejandro Paleo and starring Ariel Dombasi, so she's quite a well known like figure in Mexico to this day.
1: okay, and this movie is like during the height mm-hmm. of her popularity.
0: yes, yeah, I guess like in some ways, what with the like popular blonde bombshell with like a tragic suicide who's like who people are still like fascinated by, she's kind of like a Mexican Marilyn Monroe in that way sure. The movie's lead actor, Carlos Navarro, was another big-name respected actor of the time. He had won an Ariel Award in 1951 for his performance in Donna Perfecta. He was born in 1921 and began acting in 1946, and his acting career lasted until he died in 1969 of Unknown Causes, later suspected to be AIDS.
1: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Was AIDS around in 1969? Um... When I think of AIDS, I think
0: of the 80s. You think of the 80s. So AIDS wasn't called AIDS until the 80s, until like 1981 or 82, I think. Um, And it wasn't really known, like, really well until like around 1981. Um, But like people were dying of it through the late 70s. Uh, It was brought to the United States from Haiti in 1969. Uh, The earliest known human cases of it are in the 1950s. Um, but it is suspected to have jumped to human populations in the early 20th century. Okay. But this is a situation where like, nobody knew what he died of at the time. And looking back, they're like, well, it might've been AIDS because he was gay. And like, it fits what kind of the information about his death they had was. Sure. But it was like, at the time it was just like, huh, he dead, you know? Okay. The film's villain. Is played by Jose Maria Linares Rivas, who was born in Spain in 1901 to a family of lawyers, writers, and politicians. (laughs) So he's a little bit like the black sheep of the family. (laughs) Well, Jose Maria studied law and medicine and painting before he gave theater a try and discovered a passion for acting. He began appearing in Spanish films before leaving for Latin America when the Spanish Civil War broke out. He appeared on stage and radio in Cuba, Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru before coming to Mexico in the 1940s, where he resumed his film career. He was best known for playing, like, elegant continental villains.
1: Okay. (laughs) What do you mean by continental? Uh, like,
0: like, sort of European-flavored. Okay. Right? He also appeared in Inseo und Crimen*, and it was also his last film. Because he passed away in 1955.
1: Was that like a cursed movie?
0: (laughs) Apparently. Uh, He was a two-time Ariel nominee. Very well respected. um, And best I could find out, like, he died of, like, being 59 years old and not in good health. Okay. The film Cinematography is by Victor Herrera. Uh, The editing is by Jorge Bustos. And the music by Raul La Vista. And Bustos and La Vista worked on Man Without a Face. Okay. So we got some returning crew from that film.
1: Makes sense if you're wanting to invoke or capture Mm -hmm. the success that Oro had.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, El Monstro Resuscitado is very much inspired by the classic universal horror movies uh, and other Hollywood horror movies of, like, the 30s. Particularly Frankenstein. But there's a little bit of everything in here. Uh, the film was a great success, and it is considered to be the beginning of the popular medical subgenre of Mexican horror. It saw international distribution. Uh, nice. It was released as Monster in the United States.
1: <laughs> Very descriptive, guys. Yeah,
0: and as Il Monstro d'Otter Crimen, or The Monster of Dr. Crime in, <laughs> uh, in Italy. <laughs> Oh, Italy. <laughs> Today, we are watching the film courtesy of listener Jeffrey Cohen, who sent us a copy. The movie is available on DVD from 1-7 Films, which is a DVD company that picks up stuff that's in the public domain and puts it out on DVD. That DVD is under the U.S. title Monster, but the print on the DVD has the Italian credits so it has the Italian title, Il Monstro Dottor Crimen, although the audio track is the original Spanish uh, with English subtitles.
1: So kind of a mishmash in and of itself.
0: Yeah, a little bit. Cool.
1: Well, thank you, Jeffrey, for sending us a copy. And folks, if you want to watch along, check out 1-7 Films. Yeah. How do you know it's not 17? 17
0: because it's films. written out... O N E, and then the seven. Arabic numeral seven, and then films. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. Folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss El Monstro Resuscitado from 1953, directed by Chano Ureta.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching El Monstro Resuscitado from 1953 directed by Chano Urrutia. Ben, what did you think of this?
0: I really liked this movie. Uh, it was super bonkers and I thought it was great.
1: Can concur with the bonkersness of this movie. They just kind of throw everything at you. Yes. And don't bother to explain some of it because it's like 1953. You don't need to explain the caveman in the basement.
0: Yeah, it's like the, <laughs> the, the story makes sense once you recognize that this movie is not set in the real world. Yeah. It is set in the world of universal horror movies.
1: Absolutely. Mm hmm. Universal Land.
0: Yes. Exactly. So it's definitely in that vague, ambiguous version of Eastern Europe that like universal movies take place in. That's, that's for sure. Um, why don't you walk us through all the things that happen?
1: (laughs) Sure. I will say, I think it's taking place in Mexico. Just the people are, most of the people are from Europe, Eastern Europe.
0: Hmm. Okay. I, I disagree, but uh, I don't think it matters. They never really identify
1: where we are. Where we are. Just where people are from. Yeah, let me take it a Universal Land, <laughs> as it is. So, we follow reporter Nora um, as she faces a slow news day. <laughs> and her editor, who she's meeting for dinner, his name is Mr. Gerasimos, He encourages her to look into this personal ad that's been running in the newspaper for about a year now that is someone looking for a woman of an amiable nature to meet this mysterious man. And she's like, really? Okay. I guess I'm not doing anything else today.
0: (laughs) Movie villain seeks romantic interest.
1: (laughs) Damsel willing to be put into distress.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Basement-dwelling opera lover seeks young (laughs) ingenue.
1: (laughs) So, she meets this person at night at the wharf, which is like, yes, meet in a public place, but the wharf at midnight?
0: Yeah, that's not really public, actually. Yeah.
1: He identifies himself as Mr. Herman Ling, but it's hard to tell who he is because he has coverings on his face he's wearing sunglasses at night big trench coat you know if you saw him nowadays you'd think ah there's a man who knows how to protect himself from covid but here in 1953 um it's just weird
0: yeah he has kind of an invisible man look going but instead of like the bandages it's like black satin like head coverings
1: now Nora because she's chasing a story, she does a little bit of um, Lois Lane, of just kind of rolling with things as things get weird, rather than (laughs) listening to her gut to say, get the fuck out of there. (laughs) She's like, oh, no, it's nice to meet you, mysterious man with face coverings. Um, Oh, you want to take me back to your place to do a a test? Yeah, sure. Oh, to get to your place, we have to drive way out of town and walk through a cemetery? To get to your mansion on the side of a cliff, overlooking like the bay, yeah, okay. Those howling dogs and mysterious fog. Oh, I'm sure that's just part of the aesthetic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, you have a big, giant, creaky front door, and like a a weird servant who calls you master, and like.
1: I'm sure it's fine.
0: Yeah, this is all fine. This is normal.
1: <laughs> that servant. His name is Misha. And he's basically doing a bit of a, a Dwight Fry thing here, mm-hmm. um, and he—he's just there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's there making a living.
0: Yeah, he's—he came with the house, <laughs> like, like this movie is telling you, like, hey, look, there's a cemetery, fog, big castle. This guy lives here, so he just gets all the accoutrements that you're supposed to get. Yeah. Like we don't don't need to explain it. Like, of course, like, yeah, of course he has this, like, what kind of movie did you think you walked into basically? Exactly.
1: And that's what Nora should be thinking. As she walks into this house, there are wax figures of women throughout the house. And she's like, um, yeah, I'll just roll with it. Okay. (laughs) And Misha is like, those are the works of the master. But that's only a hobby. During his day job he actually and then he gets like shooed away. Yeah. By uh Herman.
0: I must insist that we have to call him Herman Ling Herman in full Ling. every time because at no point in this movie do they ever call him Herman or Doctor Ling. He is always just Herman Ling. Okay. Whole complete name.
1: <laughs> so Herman Ling starts <laughs> to explain like a little bit of his dark past she's like why do you have a face covering and he's like oh I'm actually horribly deformed and the world made fun of me and it was terrible and my parents abandoned me and I got kicked out of my village and but everything changed once I started wearing these face coverings I got to go to college I became a world-renowned plastic surgeon no one cared who I was till I put on the mask <laughs> And it's like, oh, irony of ironies. I make other people beautiful with plastic surgery, but I cannot make myself beautiful. And uh, at that moment, <laughs> Nora hears, like, screaming coming through the house. And she's like, the fuck? And Herman Ling is like, no, don't worry. <laughs> it's, <laughs> <laughs> we live by the sea. Those yells are just The sailor is announcing to their families, they've come home from sea. (laughs) And then he turns to Misha and he's like, make the idiot be quiet, please. Yeah. Just drug him full of whatever. Just make him be quiet. I'm trying to romance a girl. (laughs) Don't come in when you see the sock on the handle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But like, like Nora goes to the like balcony and she sees some boats on the bay. So she's like, okay, I I guess. Sure. I don't live by the
1: sea. <laughs> so he's like, do, do you want to see my laboratory? And she's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so he brings her down. And this he's like, yeah, it's, it's so unfair that, like, I make other people beautiful, but I can't make myself beautiful. And that's why I must do justice on the world by making others deformed such as me. And and he goes into a bit of a, like, evil scientist uh, speech. And she's like, oh, I mean, don't you think that's, like, revenge? And he's like, I call it justice. She's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Weirdest first
0: date ever. (laughs) She's, like, trying to be it's it's because she's trying to be supportive in some ways, right? She's being like, Oh well those people were wrong to treat you that way and like, don't worry, like you you're 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 a great doctor and I'm sure like you're a genius and like you've done so much good for people and you know, you shouldn't really let those people get to you and blah blah blah. Herman Ling is like no one's ever said such nice things to me. Right. And like it's it's an interesting performance from Miroslava because like it's it's kind of unclear like how much of this is her saying what she knows he wants to hear to keep herself safe and how much she actually believes um, what she's saying because she kind of seems sort of on the fence between those two attitudes but then she's like so um, with the great revenge plan so who who would be first?
1: Women. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like fuck. And he's like, no, 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 no. I wouldn't hurt you. You've been so nice to me. And she's like, oh, okay. Well, uh, didn't you say you had a test for me to do or something? And he's like, oh yeah. So I was going to show you my face, but you've been so nice. So I don't want to scare you off. And she's like, no, like, trust me. Like, show me your face. And he's like, if you could stand this, I would devote my life to anything you wanted. And she's like, so not, not this plot then. I could say like, just continue to help people and he's like oh absolutely like totally my my life's revenge totally meaningless if if you can accept my face Mm -hmm. and she's like great show me so he takes off the mask and he has kind of a um a rondo hatton look um it's very clearly clearly like paper mache but they get around that they kind of lampshade it a bit by saying that his face isn't really connected to any nerves so he can't really express any kind of emotion
0: yeah it's it's a good way to to get around the fact that it's obviously just a big mask right yeah. like but it, it's pretty well
1: done all things considered it, yeah
0: it's okay like it's not expressive at all and that clearly is a hard time for the actor but like you you know it's you can see his real eyes and he can kind of move the jaw and he's kind of using it you know in his performance mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's definitely like acromegaly adjacent
1: yeah And she's like, oh, no, it's, it's fine. Like, let me, let me kiss you on on the forehead, not on the (laughs) lips though, because that, that would be weird. Hi, great. Uh, I want to help you show your genius to the world. Yay, no revenge, right? And he's like, oh, thank God, Nora. Oh, I'm saved. Cut to. (laughs) Herman Ling has tossed out all of his waxed figures um, out the window to the cliffs below because he doesn't need those women anymore. He is a real lady (laughs) now. And he is like, guess what, Misha? I'm going on a date. I'm meeting Nora at this one restaurant in town, the only restaurant that exists. And Misha's like, well, master, just be ready for a possible disappointment. And he's like, shut up, Misha. You don't know what you're talking about. Nora loves me. Meanwhile,
0: Misha's like, just remember, master, bros before hoes, right?
1: Like I said, meanwhile, (laughs) Nora is at the restaurant with her editor and she's like, you're not going to believe this is going to be the best story I've ever written. There was cemeteries and graves and wax figures and disfigurement and weird servants. It's going to be great. And the editor's like, sounds like a great fictional story. He doesn't really believe any bit of this. Now, see, Nora has made a fatal mistake. Uh, She's pulled an Archie. She's meeting with her editor right now, but Herman Ling is supposed to meet her at this restaurant in, like, five minutes. And so she's like, well, I can talk to my editor about this story I'm writing about this guy by leading him on. Mm -hmm. Herman Ling overhears. And he's like, oh, no. And he, like, runs (laughs) off. I
0: am betrayed.
1: (laughs) And they're like, did you hear a weird moan? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, it's that classic, like, sitcom thing where he's there to overhear her for the part where she's like, and he was a hideous monster, but he leaves before the part where she's like, and I want to help him.
1: Exactly. She wants to help him. She doesn't want to publish her story yet. She will eventually, but she wants to help him help the world. So you, you can't fully hate on Nora.
0: Mm-hmm. Unless you're Herman Lane.
1: Unless you're Herman Lane. Yes. <laughs> So he bails, and she's she's basically stood up. So she's like, "All right, I'll head to his house and see what's up." He confronts her in the cemetery, and he's like, "I heard what you said. I'm a monster, and fuck you for writing your story about me and leading me on. You're you're horrible, and I'm going to start my revenge on you." Oh no, no! Let me explain. Exactly. And so she's like running through the cemetery. Now, plot twist: uh, Herman Lang trips and falls in the <laughs> fog. But not before he decries, I shall now be known as Dr. Crime. <laughs> yes.
0: He, he gives himself a supervillain name.
1: Oh, my which God. Which is
0: fantastic.
1: So he's chasing Nora from his house all the way back to town, through the town, back to the wharf. And she does some, there's some cat and mouse stuff where she's hiding and that makes a sound and he follows her but she manages to get away because he spots another woman wandering the wharf at midnight and kills her, thinking that it's Nora.
0: Yeah, she's got like the same trench coat on and basically the same length of hair in the same color, which, so I thought Miroslava was blonde, and Mm -hmm. I referenced her as blonde at the start of the episode because looking at black and white photos and watching this black and white movie, she looks blonde to me, yeah. but the dialogue repeatedly refers to her and this other woman who gets killed by mistake as having red hair. So, I mean, that's totally believable, basically. I mean, like, if on black and white film, if you have, like, you know, more lighter red hair, it's probably going to look blonde, and if you have darker red hair, it's going to look brunette, because...
1: It's monochrome. Exactly. So I won't hold that against you. <laughs>
0: For not, for not instinctually identifying a redhead.
1: <laughs> so, Herman Ling, I mean, Dr. Crime.
0: I mean, to be fair, Herman Ling is also very inconsistent from this point on. Sometimes he remembers he's Dr. Crime, but he's so used to talking about himself in the third person as Herman Ling. <laughs> he's got kind of a Dr. Doom thing, where he's like, Herman Ling will show all of those
1: fools. Um... Herman Ling comes back to the castle and he's like, Misha, you'll never guess what happened. I'm terrible at murder. I I can't kill people. I, I tried and I killed the wrong person. So I'm not a murderer. <laughs> I, th- I mean, I think he
0: means that in the sense of I'm not cut out to be a murderer. Because <laughs> he did
1: clearly murder. So so Misha, I need I need to find someone else to do this sturdy work for me, and Misha's like Misha can do it, Master. And he's like, No, Misha
0: <laughs> No. You would merely do what I tell you to do. I need someone to actually like enact my very will.
1: Exactly. Luckily <laughs> in the news, a man has died. I don't know how, because the like, newspaper was in Spanish and wasn't translated for us. Um, but he has died. Handsome boy dies. Han- handsome boy dies. So, Dr. Herman Ling crime um, <laughs> is like, perfect, dig up that corpse for me. Remember when I said that um, there were cries coming through the house and Herman Ling was like, Misha, make that guy shut up? Turns out there's a caveman in the basement. <laughs> like this ape man who who they refer to as... So he looks like, um... Like a very hairy man. He looks like, um, one of Dr., like an escapee from Dr. Moreau's Island. He's got, like,
0: from the neck down, he's, like, covered in hair like he's an ape man. But his head is like a bald dude with a big beard, like that guy who's in all those Rob Zombie movies. (laughs) Like, he looks exactly like that dude if that dude was also an ape.
1: Um... And he just grunts and stuff, but clearly he understands, like, commands. They take Kronink, chain him to a wall, and then through the magic, I mean science, of Strykfaden equipment, (laughs) um, they transfer the soul of Kronink into this handsome dead man Mm -hmm. to reanimate him. Mm -hmm.
0: This is the resuscitated monster.
1: Yes. You'd think... That they were referring to Herman Ling as he describes himself as a dead man, but you would be incorrect. Yes. So, Dr. Herman Ling Crime explains to this man that your name is Ariel now, and you have three rules that you cannot break. First rule, don't fall in love. And it's like, why is that a rule? Like, why, out of everything, like, that's number one. Right. Shouldn't number one be, like, always follow my commands? No, it's don't fall in love. Number two is kill on my command, Mm -hmm. like, only on my command. And three is for Ariel to live as long as I live. Yeah. (laughs) So, they do a test run of some murders. Um,
0: Wait a minute. We got to back up for a second here. The thing about these rules for Ariel is they're all playing into this idea, like, what's important to Herman Ling is that he have this guy who he can send out to kill people who is, like, an extension of his will. So the key thing to understand here is that Herman Ling, with no explanation at all, is telepathically controlling yes. Ariel. Yes. So one of, like, the, like, so he, he's like, okay, so I'm going to telepathically Command you. It's not explained how he's doing this. And when I want control of you, I have control over you. And you're going to do what I make you do. And it's like one to one telepathic control. Like Ariel says what he wants him to say and stuff, right? And then he's like, But when I'm not controlling you, you're free to just live your own life and go about your business. Except for love. Don't fall in love. Hate everybody. Uh, kill when I tell you to. And then one of the other things is, oh, yeah, and if you happen to see me, like, if we end up in a, like, why aren't Clark Kent and Superman in the same room situation, (laughs) you don't know who I am. And if you're in the same room with me and you can see me, you won't recognize me and you won't follow my orders. Because then we've got some plausible deniability built in here, right? Yeah. So you've got a room at this hotel. (laughs) Go off and, and live your life, Ariel.
1: So they do some test murders um, uh, where uh, Herman Lang is like, X-Men, X-Men, kill this redhead. And Ariel goes and kills this redhead. So now it's time to attack Nora. Mm -hmm. And they do this through a ruse.
0: An elaborate ruse.
1: Ariel meets Nora at the restaurant and he poses, or as far as he knows, this is what he is. A journalist from Bucharest who is just like a huge fan. He's like Nora No last name. Um big fan, would love to talk with you. I'm a journalist as well. I would love to um I came all the way here from Bucharest just to meet you and I would love to do an interview with you. And Nora's like, yeah, okay. Like weird that you know me but <laughs> I didn't I guess think so. I was
0: that famous.
1: Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I mean, like, a woman as beautiful as you? Like, you probably would never think of plastic surgery. And she's like, well, why would you bring that up? That's weird. That's weird. And he's, like, continuing to say weird things where Nora's like, that's, like, something that Herman Ling said. Hmm. (laughs) But she agrees to this interview, so she's like, yeah, Ariel, I'll meet you here tomorrow night. Cool. Whatever. He leaves. During their conversation between Ariel and Nora, um, off still at the restaurant, but just like hiding behind a screen, is Herman Ling, who is like telling Ariel what to say um, in response and kind of setting this up. So when Ariel leaves, Herman Ling leaves as well.
0: Yeah, I, I guess like he can do long range telepathy, but like to have him respond properly to nora he needs to be able to hear what nora is saying exactly so.
1: good to know that there are some limits on this like newfound talent of his right
0: like like i'm sorry doc wait a minute if you could do this the whole time
1: <laughs> so um nora has been waiting for her editor mr Garasimos, so he arrives and he's like hey i just passed a weird guy And she's like, oh, that was Ariel. He's a journalist or something like that. And he's like, no, no, no. This guy wore like a mask over his face and really looked like that Herman Ling guy you were talking about. I think I believe you. And I think something weird is going on. And she's like, oh, shit. (laughs) Cut to the next night. We see some people kind of sniffing around the restaurant, almost like they are police undercover. Mm -hmm. And Nora meets Ariel. And he's like, great, love to see you again. Thank you for saying yes to this interview. Why don't we take a drive? And she's like, oh, okay. So they drive off and Herman Ling is following in his car. And then uh, one of the police officers comes out and gets a taxi and is following them. So Ariel drives her around and takes her to the wharf, you know, where she met Herman Ling the first time. Which was implied until this point to be within walking distance of the town. Mm-hmm. So I have no concept of, like, space nor time at this exact moment.
0: All we really know is, like, that the wharf sort of is middle distance between the town and the spooky castle. And that you need to drive to the spooky castle from the wharf. Or you can also
1: walk... Yeah, because, um... Nora runs off back. from, yeah. Yeah, so it's, relationship between places is confusing. This is
0: a liminal space.
1: So Ariel takes Nora to the wharf, and she's like, why did you bring me here? And he's like, don't you know? Can't you tell who I am speaking through this puppet? And it's Herman Ling, who's meh. Nah. And um, <laughs> so Nora's freaking out, and Herman Ling's like, Ariel sucker in the jaw so she gets a right hook it's not like a slap it's a right hook and so she's knocked out and Herman Ling's like Ariel bring her to the castle.
0: You guys at home like cannot see this (laughs) and I'm so sorry for you but every time Sarah is doing this she's got like I mean Herman Ling does not do this in the movie but Sarah has got her like first two fingers like rubbing her temples like she's like Professor X, yes. like, you know, calling for X, his X-Men. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very cool. It's Well, it's very fun to see.
1: I'm glad you're enjoying my I'm antics. En- yes,
0: I'm enjoying your antics.
1: So they take her back to the castle, whatever, and um, Ariel puts her on the couch, and then he, like, rests his head on hers, because he is breaking the first rule of don't fall in love. What are you doing, buddy? Herman Ling comes in and he's like, Ha ha ha! Evil machinations! <laughs> Nora wakes up and she's like, Oh, fuck. Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. As Herman Ling goes to attack her, um, now remember what Ben said, uh, Ariel can't take commands from Herman Ling when he sees him and also doesn't know who he is. But the chronic personality or grunting whatever Mm -hmm. takes over and he starts going like like (laughs) upset about what's going on and attacks Herman Ling and they have a sprawling fight through the entryway through the living room up the stairs onto the balcony and then Herman Ling gets tossed from the balcony and then Kronink slash Ariel picks up Herman Lang and tosses him out the window. And you hear an, ah, as he crashes to the sea below. And you might think, well, okay, good good job, Ariel Kronink. Like, okay. Save the day. Save the day. Um, Now that's just as the police pop in and Ariel Kronink's like, man, Wah, must save Nora, and, like, goes to attack them, and they shoot him, like, multiple times. Like, I, I think the first bullet got him, guys, mm. but no, they they use the whole revolver, and Nora runs to his side, and she's like, oh, no. Um, Misha is nowhere to be seen. He's M.I.A. just the Popo showed Misha, up. Yeah,
0: Misha is there the entire, like, Ariel v. Herman Ling fight, and he's not... Helping or doing anything. He's just kind of standing there, deer in the headlights. And then, like, Ariel tosses Herman Ling into the sea. And by the time Ariel's back in the house, Misha has bolted. (laughs) He's just out of there.
1: So that's the end. (laughs) Oh, Yeah. So, like, like I said, it's bonkers.
0: Absolutely. But it's like, it's operating on, like, comic book logic, right? Like, why does herman ling have like a weird servant well because he has a weird castle well why does he have a weird castle because he's a mad scientist well why is he a mad scientist well because he's disfigured like we've got invisible man we've got phantom of the opera we've got uh mystery the wax museum yeah we've got uh frankenstein we got the brute man we've got the brute man We've got... Have we had, like, a telepathically controlled monster before?
1: Just uh, stuff with Dracula.
0: Okay. I guess, like,
1: a little bit of um, white zombie.
0: Okay, so some white zombie, yeah. And, like, all of these things wrapped up in a bunch here, right? And so the movie's going, you've seen all these movies. I don't need to spend time explaining this shit. (laughs) Like, why does he have an ape man in the basement? Fuck you, that's why. Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> he's a mad scientist. What else is he going to have in his basement? Yeah. Like, I was trying to figure out why he needed Kronik for the experiment. And I guess part of it is, like, he brings the dead body back to life with Kronik's life force or soul or whatever. Right? He, You know. But then why? If he If he has telepathic powers, like, why can he control Ariel and not just... Everyone else.
1: Well, like, it, it's clear that, like, there's something between, like, the caveman brain and the zombie.
0: Yeah. So the only explanation I could really think of is that, like, Kronik's brain is, like, so simple and empty because he's just, like, a caveman that he can be taken control of. That's the only... But, like, that's just me filling in...
1: The blanks. The blanks.
0: Because, yeah. yeah, the movie it, is...
1: <laughs> is not concerned with telling you what the blanks are. But I will say that this is not a case of people using these tropes or iconography or anything like that without understanding why. Yes. They understand why something's here and how you use it. Um, There was a movie we watched where like they just didn't know why Mm -hmm. things were. Mm -hmm. They just knew that they were. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, it's like a lot of the,
0: the Poverty Row movies and stuff, right? Yeah.
1: And that's what this film really reminds me of. It's not necessarily universal, but maybe like tail end of horror movies at Universal on the way to Poverty Row.
0: Well, and, like, speaking of the way that they're using these tropes, I have to believe that the filmmakers had a blast making this.
1: Absolutely. You can feel the enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. Even as things are, like, really not done well. Well, like,
0: it's just the absolute relish that they are putting into all these cliches And, you know, is it a lot of different tropes and elements thrown into one thing? Yes. But you get the feeling it's because they're so excited to be playing with these toys and don't know if they're ever going to get another shot. So it's like, let's just do all of it. You know, speaking about the, like, cheapness of it, right? Like, the the Poverty Row feel of it. So the the biggest thing here that contributes to the movie feeling cheap, well, there's two things.
1: Mm, There's three things, but you go on.
0: Okay. So, the movie doesn't really have any extras, so the streets are very empty when people are chasing each other through them. That's and, how you knew that they were being followed <laughs> right and a lack of extras is always like a telltale sign of a low budget. Also, this movie completely refuses to do any location shooting, so when they're at the wharf, when they're at the cliff by the sea, when they're in the cemetery, any anytime where we're not like indoors or, like, on the street where we can kind of represent it by a set, uh, we have some rear projection going on. Like, the wharf scene is, like, in a small, like, 10 foot by 10 foot square room where one wall of it is just, you know, rear projection of a wharf, right?
1: And the angle does not match.
0: No. But, like, they're trying their best. And the feeling I get is not necessary. I don't know if this movie was low budget. Because the thing is, is that, like, it's not always fair to compare a film made outside of Hollywood with Hollywood, like, budget levels. Yeah. And all of the actors in this movie are, like, distinguished, like, the equivalent of Oscar-winning actors. And while there's no location shooting, I personally really liked all the sets. The, like, yeah, home for Herman Ling is, like, a really cool... Elaborate set. The laboratory is mm-hmm. like a big cool set.
1: Yeah, and- the mansion inside feels very. Um, it really reminded me of the German Expressionist sets that you see in Son of Frankenstein.
0: Yes. And, you know, looking at the laboratory and the Strickfaden equipment and everything, in a Universal B movie, you would see that lab or you would see these sets or you would see that equipment and you would go, oh, well, you know, this comes from this other movie. Like, I remember this set from this movie and that movie and the other thing. But, like, these guys don't have that. No. So these sets probably were built for this movie. And they're pretty cool. They're pretty impressive. I just don't know if it was just, like, they didn't have the ability to go on location. Like, it was winter or some shit. I don't know. But, like, I don't think this was necessarily cheap by the standards of Mexican film Mm -hmm. at the time. But it is, by comparison to Hollywood, definitely has that poverty row feel
1: yeah now the third thing that you're missing is the editing hmm there were a few times where the editing is inexplicably like bad almost like it makes me wonder are they doing this on purpose so the one shot that really comes to mind is when nora is running through the cemetery and uh she runs by this tree and you see a cross in the background mm. and she's there she's standing there and then it cuts to that scene empty and jim ling his face like close up to the camera coming in and being like i'll catch you next time yeah like it's supposed to be a shot of like him
0: looking at her from like afar but the background like the the rear projection background in both shots is the same and like i i can only think that like They made a mistake on set, because they're two different shots, right? So they were like, okay, throw up some film from the cemetery, reprojection, whatever. And then when they got to the edit bay, they were like, oh, fuck. Nothing really we can do about this. It creates a really weird jump cut, for sure.
1: There's a couple of weird cuts and and editing moments like that um, throughout the film. You commented during the movie, Ben, that they consistently... Broke the 180 degree rule. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if that would have been an established rule of the trade. Oh, by 1953, absolutely. So it it makes me wonder, like, are they purposely breaking some of these rules? So I I actually think they are. Yeah. Because
0: um, I actually liked the editing in this movie, despite how bizarre it was. Yeah. Because I feel like one of the things that helped this movie not feel so low budget to me Or, or, not that it doesn't feel low budget, but that it avoids one of the problems that Poverty Row movies have. Which is, Poverty Row movies often struggle with pacing. Yeah. And one of the reasons they struggle with pacing is because when you don't have a lot of money, you usually also don't have a lot of time. So you have to shoot your scenes very economically. And what that means is, okay, we've got like a three-page scene in this room of these two people talking. So we're just going to set the camera up on a tripod in a mid shot and shoot them proscenium. And that'll be the one shot. In fact, that'll be the one and only angle for this whole room every time we come to this room. And so there's no cuts during the conversation. The camera just sits there for like three minutes as people talk. It's very listless. It's very lifeless. So one of the things that made me think maybe this wasn't so low budget is that every scene in this movie has like dozens of shots they are cutting all the time and yeah they're cutting over the 180 degree line which is like bizarre and they have these weird cuts that are a little bit jarring and jump cutty and if they had the time to do all those different lighting setups then they had time yeah and with the editing of it the thing that it does for me is even if they're breaking these rules and being a bit jarring, it's keeping the film alive. That's true. That it's avoiding that feeling of like, oh, we're just stuck in this room for like five minutes and mm-hmm. nothing's going on. It, it sort of keeps this sense of like forward momentum and life going, especially when they break the 180 degree rule, because it kind of like kicks your brain and makes you go, oh, that was weird, but like keeps you kind of engaged. So I just wonder if like they were doing that on purpose just to try and like again, like keep excitement or like a, a an illusion of excitement up in scenes that didn't have any.
1: I think that's actually very likely. Um, because while as we've pointed out, those similarities with Poverty Row film, this does not fall into the like pacing issues of like now we're driving here, <laughs> now we're driving there. Like, yes, there were moments where I'm like very confused with the relationships between these places and the distances and everything. But no, at no point was I like, okay, now we drive here and now we drive there.
0: Yeah. Like if anything, the confusion is happening because when we go from one place to another, we just cut. Yeah. Right. Rather than us getting like a full scene of like Nora walks to her car, opens the door, closes the door, drives away, drives down a street, drives, you know, and like getting the same footage each time back and forth.
1: Yeah. So for me personally, I don't think this movie is very good, but I will say that it is fun. You see a lot of the passion and enthusiasm for it. I think everyone making it had fun, Um, and I think it is a very good homage to 1930s horror movies. Oh, for sure. I I agree that I think with all of that except that I
0: think it is good. Okay. It's just it's just good for a very specific value of good, which is to say that if you like classic 1930s horror movies, which like I'm pretty sure it's clear we do because we do this show, <laughs> um then this I think is a movie you'll like. Yeah. I don't think this is a good movie. I do you think this is a good horror movie?
1: Sure, basically. I think that's a great distinction. I will say I was a little disappointed because the last horror movie we saw in Mexico was really pushing boundaries mm-hmm. and then this is just like an homage to a bygone era. I th-
0: I think it's like the difference between like if you got, you know, in the same year stuff like Get Out or Hereditary And then, like, in that same year, getting, like, you know, a fun, like, slasher throwback movie, right? And it's, like, both things can be good and fun, but definitely, like, one is your more, like, highbrow movie that, like, you know, the critics don't want to call horror. Yeah. And the other is you're, like, no, we're having fun here. Let's revel in the fact that this is a horror movie.
1: Yeah, that's fair.
0: I think one of the things that really helps with the sets and the lack of location shooting and all of that is that this movie does really well by the cinematography. Like they know what this is supposed to look like.
1: Yeah. The cinematography, the mise-en-scene. Yeah. um, Except for the viewer projection (laughs) moments. um, I think they're all really well done. Even those are like when during the scene, when Nora comes into the mansion for the first time, like Mm -hmm. it's, Great. The way that it feels claustrophobic yet expansive. The wax figures in and of themselves. yeah, Like, it's very well done. And, and
0: they, the wax figures definitely have that, like, house of wax thing of, like, you're not quite sure if you're looking at statues or people. Yeah. Um, the light and shadow really makes up for a lot of the um, weaknesses of the film in the terms of, like, making the sets look good, but also... Helping the soundstage rear projection stuff like match a little better, especially in the cemetery by just keeping everything very high contrast. The scene where I really noticed the cinematography was the scene where they go get Chronic from mm-hmm. his cage in like the dungeon. Yeah. Like, that scene looks great. Yeah. Um, and they do a really good job with all of the lighting and the framing being selective about when we see the movie's monsters, and from what angles, and from how far away, and in what light and what shadow, right? Trying to just, you know, give us the full picture, but minimize the amount of time where we could look at something close up in full light and go, oh, that looks crappy. Yeah. Which, I guess, speaking of stuff looking crappy, I, I really have to give props to Jose Maria Linares Rivas... For performing this whole movie in basically one of two full face masks.
1: Yeah, he does a really good job, especially um when he's in the, like, um, boot man makeup, yeah. basically. Um, because you can understand him mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, like, get a feel for, like, his emotional state.
0: Yeah, he has to overplay things a little bit like he tends to be very declarative luckily that fits with his character because he's like Dr Crime but like <laughs> uh but he needs to do that to like get through the mask i think that like no one in this cast is really like knocking it out of the park but nobody's bad either yeah like i think mina slava is very likable as Nora and like I said earlier gives like a really interesting performance in the sense of like giving what could be a very stereotypical character some layers just through like showing with her facial expressions during scenes that like even when she's repulsed by Herman Ling she's kind of into him or even when she's like confused and suspicious of Ariel she's also kind of like into him or like whatever and (laughs) poor, poor Carlos Navarro who is playing Ariel, and just, like, really putting the effort into the role of, like, a brainless <laughs> ape man trapped in a handsome lad body who's only charming when he's under telepathic control. Like, it's yeah, a what? ludicrous role.
1: <laughs> Imagine, like, the casting call
0: sheet for that, like... Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, and so, like, everybody's trying their best to, like, do right by the material.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, let's... let's figure out where it ranks on the old list so I think Sarah that this is going to be really interesting because it's clear that we both enjoyed the movie and thought it was really fun but you walked away from the movie going this was bad and I walked away from it going this was good actually
1: I said it it was not good that doesn't necessarily mean bad
0: sure but I'm very curious where we ended up landing on the list so who do you want to go first I can go first. All right. Where are you looking?
1: So I first wanted to look at where another bonkers-ass movie is Mm -hmm. on the list. Uh, I'm thinking of The Face of Marble.
0: Oh, yeah. Sure. The Face of Marble is something.
1: Is something. Um, Vampire Ghost Dogs. Now, that's all the way down to 114, and I don't feel like El Monstruo resuscitado, deserves to be down here. So I was like, okay, let's recalibrate the brain a little bit. And I thought of a movie where you could tell everyone was also kind of having fun in Voodoo Man
0: at number 88. Right. Yeah. I think that's fair.
1: Now above that is things like The Climax, Invisible Man's Revenge, Lady and the Monster. And I was like, okay, you know, I feel like this is kind of a good ceiling area So, 88 is my ceiling, and then I went down, and there's The Mad Monster, Return of Doctor X, Mystery of the Wax Museum, which is kind of fun to compare to. The thing, though, is Mystery of the Wax Museum and The Devil Doll, right below that, both also take a lot of things Mm -hmm. and try to put them into a single movie. Right. And it doesn't quite blend. Yes. Whereas I feel like a monstruo visacitado managed to take a bunch of things and really blends them together.
0: I think it's because the elements in Mystery of the Wax Museum and Devil Doll that are being forced together are things from different genres. Yeah. Like Devil Dolls trying to be like a romance and a family drama and like a comedy and like a heist movie and like a mad scientist picture and like all these a cross dressing movie. Like it's too many things. And same with Mystery of the Wax Museum. Everything that's being mixed together in this movie is horror. Yes. It's just different horror stuff.
1: Yeah. So my floor was 91. I would not put this below Mystery of the Wax Museum. So, so 88 to 91. That's
0: a real small range. Um,
1: so yeah, where were you looking?
0: So we're going to have a problem because I am way higher than you.
1: Okay. Uh, well, where were you looking?
0: So I started by thinking... This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this. And my first instinct was to compare it to the other Mexican horror movies we've seen. And I thought this was, like, one of my favorites. And so I was like, okay, well, what's the highest-ranking one that we have? Well, it's El Hombre Sin Rostro, uh, which is ranked at 36. And I was like, okay, is did I like this more than that or not? And, like, El Hombre Sin Rostro is, like, more... Boundary pushing, more like daring, like it's trying to do newer things. But it also, like, you know, it, I, it's hard because you can't really fault it for this, but it kind of fell down for me because I was able to guess what was going to happen at every stage. For some reason, in El Hombre sin Rostro, that was a weakness. Whereas the fact that I knew everything that was gonna happen in this movie just by the tropes, wasn't, and I don't know. Why, in terms of, like, watching the movie, what difference exists that that was, like, a difference in how I enjoyed them. Like, El Ombres and Rostro is, like, a horror movie. It's like a movie trying to do a serious drama thing under the guise of a horror movie, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's getting you in with, like, it's a man without a face. And it's like, no, we're actually talking about this guy's deep-seated mommy issues. And it's a good movie for that, but anyway. So I was all this is as conflicted as to which was better because they're basically so different in flavor. It's like a really good steak versus like a really good chocolate cake. What's the better food? Like, yeah, uh, hard yeah. to say. So looking above El Hombre, there's Dead of Night, which is always a problem for us because it's good except when it's not. And above that is the Maze, and I was like, okay, I don't think this is better than the Maze. Um, so I started looking down. I started spotting movies that I felt were, like, equally fun to this movie, like The Man Who Changed His Mind, uh, Son of Dracula, The Devil Commands, which is also, like, a bonkers movie, um, The Man They Could Not Hang, uh, It Came From Outer Space, and I hit House of Dracula, and I was like, yeah, I would much rather watch this homage to universal horror movies than any of these actual universal horror movies here at forty-eight, forty-nine, fifty.
1: That's a good point.
0: So I ended up with a range of 34 to 48, which is quite a bit higher than yours. The difference between our ranges is 48 to 88. Oh, 40, God. 40 straight movies. If we look at the exact midpoint, that gets us to 68, which is the original von Heimliche Geschichten from 1919. So why don't we start looking in this area and try to balance out between us?
1: Well, right below that is the 32 Dr. X. Mm -hmm. Dr. X is like trying to hedge its bets with the comedic belief of the reporter. Whereas El Monstro Resuscitado knows that you're having fun in and of itself. So I think based on that, we can go above Dr. X for sure.
0: Yeah, El Monstro Resuscitado, like knows that it's okay to like i don't know have fun like have a woman get punched in the face because, (laughs) or like whatever because it knows that you're a horror audience and this is what you're here for right like that it doesn't need to like undercut the stuff that's like weird and disturbing with humor
1: and i think the same could be said with um the beast with five fingers at 62
0: Mm, yeah which kind of of like yeah really tries to undercut
1: its ending so sorry what was your floor again
0: Oh, 48.
1: Okay, so now we're looking between 48 and 62.
0: I think comparing this movie with, like, Strangler of the Swamp and, like, White Zombie is really interesting. Like, this movie has a very White Zombie-esque feel. I guess part of it's the question of, like, what do you give more points to, the thing or the homage? Yeah. You know?
1: Which is funny to think of with White Zombie because the directors were kind of homaging silent film.
0: Right. Plus ripping off Dracula.
1: Yeah. But Captive Wild Woman's right there at fifty-six. Mm.
0: And I do think this is better than Dr. Renault's Secret. Yeah. This is actually a very good comparison. The valley Louie of the
1: Melvin the Earth.
0: Oh no, I was gonna say Valley of the Zombies. Oh which, yeah. Which as you recall has no Valley and no Zombies, and is instead like What if Vampire was a Batman villain? Oh yeah. That movie which yeah. is kind of equally over the top and wacky, like like both that movie and this movie could play as an episode of the Batman TV show. That would the be 60s. fun. I will say I think I'm willing to stay below El Fantasma del Convento.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't think I would go above that. All right, so cool. I'd like this area fifty, fifty three to fifty six. El Fantasma to Captive Wild Woman. Um, thinking about Lelou de Malvenire, which was also a universal homage, but by the French. Mm-hmm. Ten years before this.
0: Both of them have, like, the same thing of, like, mixing multiple elements. Like, Lulu de Malvenire is, like, a Hound of the Baskervilles werewolf mad scientist movie. Both movies also have, like, elements of their plot that don't really make sense or that come out of nowhere. Like, the telepathy in both movies...
1: Yeah. What do you think about Below Phantasma del Convento and Above La de Malvenure? Yeah, I'm into that. Okay.
0: So entering the list at the new number 54, Below El Fantasma del Convento and Above La de Malveneur is El Monstro Resuscitado <laughs> from 1953, directed by Chano Urueta.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, com. There you can find links to the other movies we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line there. You can reach out directly through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene.
0: Scream Scene. updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can listen to the show through whatever podcasting app you use by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on whatever service you listen to us on that allows you to do so. Apple Podcasts in particular is very helpful for that. And you can also just share the show over social media. Uh, Talk about us on Twitter or Facebook, MySpace. (laughs) If you have the means... You can also head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $1 level get thanked on the show. At the $5 level, you get access to weekly bonus content from past episodes, just like research or jokes or bloopers that have been cut. And at the $10 level, you get access to original writing. Um, this is included... Like short stories and movie reviews um, in the past and could include a variety of different things in the future. At our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll begin to do bonus episodes, one a month, on horror-adjacent films.
1: Like those wrestling against like, vampires? Yeah like, yeah, like some
0: like some El Santo stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's totally what would be on that list for sure. So that's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast.
1: What are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Well, Sarah, next week, we're back in America. Okay. We're back at Universal Studios. Okay. We're back with director Jack Arnold in the wonder of 3D. Because we're watching Creature from the Black Lagoon.
1: Ooh!
0: Yeah, I'm real excited about this one.
1: I haven't seen it. What? I have never seen it. What?
0: <laughs> oh! Well, it's gonna be a treat next week, then, creatures of the night. Bye! Bye!